Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Sad Times. That's my favorite time of day is when I say, welcome in, all radio voice-like. My name is Kevin. Uh, I'm your host. Uh, For those of you who have never listened to Sad Times before, welcome in, as I've said 42 times. Uh, Sad Times is a show uh, in which we have somebody on, uh, a guest on each week and talk about times that they were sad, upset, angry, emotional, uh, things that they've gone through. and they share their stories. And the goal here is not to diagnose the problem. It is not to solve the problem or judge the problem. It is to allow the guests to come on and share their story in hopes that those of you who are listening out there in podcast land, um, right next to your large, large, large radios, because I think I come on right after FDR's fireside chat, uh, that you're able to listen to these stories and maybe feel a little bit less alone. So uh, before we get to our wonderful guest today, uh, I would like to, of course, um, talk about our two. We have two sponsors today. Uh, our first sponsor is the B-Roll producers and directors for the television program Dateline. You know, when the cousin of the victim stands at a fence and stares past a spruce tree at what one can only assume is a combine and looks wistful? What, you think you felt that shit all on your own? No, that's us, the Dateline B-Roll directors. Check us out Friday nights on NBC. And the other sponsor, because this is a Zoom call, is selling my horrifying face to help your business. That's right. If you are in a town and you have a competitive business with you, I will sell you my face and you can just say that my ugly fat face is the face of your competitor. So go ahead and reach out to me, and I'm happy to help. And finally, today's show will be the first time that I ever take Prozac live on the air. Here we go. There's one. Yeah, I got to take two of them, which always confuses the pharmacist. Mm. Ah, There we go. All right, enough of that bullshit. Let's get to our guest, the champ, Katie Champ. How are you, my friend? Hey, champ. What's going on? Uh, not not much. Just feeling that Prozac course through my veins. Mm. Mm. Uh, so where are you? You're in uh, New York City, right? I do live in New York City. Yep. Wow. Yep. On the on the north end, in the mm-hmm. Bronx. You're in the Bronx, the Boogie Down Bronx. The Boogie Down Bronx, almost like at the very last moment, you could still say you're in New York City. That's where I live. But you and your husband, you guys own a house there, right? We own a co-op apartment. Oh, okay. This would be a generous term for it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, that's awesome. Have mortgage, so that we, you have a mortgage? Indeed. Yeah, that's part of my sad times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I only deal with mortgages when I'm getting my ass kicked in Monopoly, which is rare, but it does happen. And I have to mortgage my properties. So let's talk a little bit first about um, how we know each other. Uh, you and I, long ago... Uh, we're once both touring, performing non-equity actors, and we met in 2006 in New Hampshire, and we've been pretty good buddies since then. Now, you moved, when did you move to New York after that? I moved, I was already there. I think I'd been there for like six months before, oh, wow. before that gig, and so then I, I went back. But, gotcha. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, when I, when I met you, Champ, was, was a hard time. Tell the me what. Was, it was a hard time. I was supposed to go on that job, you know, as you know, it was uh, two people in a van driving around the United States um, doing children's theater in very small rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I was supposed to go on that job with the guy I was dating, but we broke up. So I continued, I, you know, I stayed on the gig, but I had to go with somebody else. So I now, you know, I thought I was going to be spending four months in a van with my boyfriend and it would be really fun. And instead I was spending four months in a van, um, with, with another actor that mm-hmm. I had never met. And it was, uh, well, I'm trying to decide how much to say here, champ, but it was, as you know, we called each other almost every day. Yep. I think once, once we left rehearsal, you and I were on the phone almost every day of that job, just, uh, surviving. Yeah, uh, and I, I apologize. I had totally forgotten though that those were the circumstances with which that brought you there. And yeah, it, it's not that you're. I know you're not trying to disparage the other person or anything like that. Uh, I I think I'd like to write like uh, a series of novels about what it's like to travel in um, non equity children's theater. We've talked a bit about it on the program. Again, you could be traveling with you know one of the Beatles, who's like a god on this planet, and still be like, I want to die. This is it's just very difficult because we're talking like hours a day driving, and there's only the two front seats, and then you mm-hmm. share a hotel room as you. A hotel room that you had about a $37 budget for. Yeah. So you had to go in and like beg for a coupon or mm-hmm. beg for them to do you a solid and like give you a discount on it. I mean, it was just like, whoo, every which way was, it was rough. It was quite an experience, was it not? Yeah. Uh, I, I liked it. So I had done it the year before. And that first year is one of the first times I realized what an asshole I was uh, because I was on that tour with one other person. And uh, I didn't do well with change or, um, well, anything really. And I would just get angry all the time. And it was it was a difficult uh, time. But she was a wonderfully patient person with me. And we did look out for each other. I think that was my favorite thing about both those tours is even when you're like, Oh my God, I don't ever want to see your face again. You're also still kind of looking out for that person. So it. Yeah, they're all you have. That's it. Exactly. I, mean, I remember you're driving down a mountain once and the brakes, the engine brakes are overheating and the engines scream. There's like smoke coming out of the thing. And I'm like, well, if I die on this mountain, it's going to be with this guy. So yeah, right. I'll uh, make the best of it. With this guy and this one college radio station, we're able to pick up on the vehicle mm. a Dodge Caravan. So you are an actor. Uh, you still are performing. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, and good. I mean, honest to God, good for you for for continuing to create and 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 make art in, in that sense. That's not an easy thing to do. So congratulations to you. Um, I know that you and I, when we have talked uh, recently, you've talked about kind of you're a pretty sensitive person. And, you know, as am I. And I think by the end of the day for sensitive people, you know, you, we just Every day, just a Tuesday, we'll call it, right? You can just feel kind of sad at the end of the day. So can you talk to me kind of about that day-to-day grief and sadness that you kind of feel, uh, you know, throughout the days? Yeah, totally. Um, so I'll, I'll say that I consider myself a highly sensitive person, and that's actually, um, I don't want to call it a diagnosis, but it is people have studied uh, this 20 or so percent of the population that's it's actually across other um, animal populations it's not just humans that they've studied that are neurologically more highly attuned to stimuli and to changes in the environment so we're sort of always on alert for danger you know we would be the the one sort of on the edge of the tribe looking out what's changing do i see smoke on the horizon like we're just more attuned to stuff mm-hmm. um and i you know I, I i live in new york so it's loud and i walk down the street and i'm looking at people and i'm thinking you know i don't think any highly sensitive people are construction <laughs> workers i think it <laughs> just it's just not the job for me 
That um, that or they've just learned to tune that shit out, I guess. They've, they've numbed it out, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's one coping mechanism. Um, but to be an actor who has numbed out their sensitivity is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. So that's been part of my journey, really, over the last 20 years is like, how can I... How can I stand to to feel as much as I feel and walk through the world at the same time? Um, and you know, you have to have you have to have guards up at some point just to walk down the street. You have to have guards up. But then, yeah, it's like I get to the end of the day and just watching the sunset or seeing, you know, it's that sort of like, especially in the summer, I've got the windows open and the, you know, the light is fading and you hear the kids laughing outside and it's this like nostalgia will hit me or just some pang of something that I couldn't even name. Um, and it often happens at the end of the day because it's, it's the end of something. It's the day is dying. This day that we're living right now will never come again. Mm. And for people who are, more attuned to that we just we feel that even the seasons shifting there's grief there um and it's i learned that it's just part of yeah it's just part of the fabric of my life so um the season shifting too you know i've heard people a lot of people say oh i don't want to live in san diego or i don't want i need seasons Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say, no, you don't, but I don't, um, no, I'm just kidding, but it's true, man. Seasons, especially in New York. Uh, I think, did you guys just get a big storm? Uh, I mean, we didn't get, it wasn't big. Okay. The only snow we've had all year, but it was like, it was negligible. Okay. Fair and enough. Around us, there, there was more. Yeah. Uh, negligible, like my maturity level. So, uh, shut up, Brent. So, um, seasons change and there is real seasonal depression. There's a real, that's a real thing. Uh, yeah. and when it's cold and it, the sun goes, as you were saying, the sun sets, sun sets at like four o'clock and you're like, what? Um, so it's just, I think it's important to hear from people who do have, it's okay to be sensitive at the end of the day and have kind of that ins and outs, because I think we're in a lot of ways we're taught. Don't feel this. Don't feel that. Or you need to uh, stem the feeling and stop it. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I know that that leads to a lot of my problems is when I feel anxious or uncomfortable, I just want to stop it. Mm -hmm. And that's not really dealing with the problem. No. And I think that's that's actually one of the biggest uh, issues, I guess, that we deal with today is this like we think that feeling the feeling is going to make it worse. But mm-hmm. actually feeling the feeling is the only way out. Feeling the feeling is going to make it better because if you feel it, it's it's what my acting teacher calls, well, you can suffer in a good way or suffer in a bad way. And in acting, it's like you can suffer as the character or you can be anxious the whole time and not actually do what you want to do. And then you're just suffering in a bad way. And I feel like anxiety in life is the same way. I could suffer in a good way and just be sad and feel my grief and move through it. Or I can suffer in a bad way all day pretending I don't feel that way. And just feeling off and out of out of alignment or out of integrity with myself because there's something going on that I refuse to acknowledge. Out of integrity with myself. I really like that phrase. Um, and and I think we're taught or not even taught. It's it's just kind of expected a lot of time that we just push it down. Yeah. And of course, uh, anyone who studies human nature or just pays attention to I don't know the street, uh, people push push these things down, and then that leads to other stuff. Right. Mm-hmm, totally. uh, um, I'm sorry. It's going to come out somehow. That's right. Uh, yeah. And 
to feel the feeling, to sit with it, right? To sit with an anxious feeling is very difficult, but the only way out is through all that good stuff. You know, um, what matters most is how well you walk through the fire. As, uh, uh, as our friend, Sir Charles Bukowski said, he's not a knight, but I made him one. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. It, and you know, bringing up the, the fire, I just, there's thinking about, I, I had this tribal, you know, analogy that I made before and I'm going back to, okay, so like, when we used to just live with the earth, maybe we would feel anxious at the end of the day. We would feel sad, let's say, at the end of the day, the day is dying. And then what would we do? We would go sit around the fire together and be. We would we would just be. And I feel like today, at least in my life, I mean, I have a, a toddler, like there's just not a lot of space for just being. So that's also this place where it's like, well, where's the sadness going to go? I don't have time to just be. And if I do have time, I'm running away from it on the internet or whatever. But this sort of communal, um, I don't want to say communal grief, but just communal life where there's, there's space to acknowledge our experience so that it's not so full of, of doing stuff. Yeah, just being is is becoming more and more of a rare commodity. I mean, you said the internet. I'm going to hold it up right here. People are – oh, there it is. People are listening to it on a phone probably right now. Um, I know when I'm starting – I feel anxious if I'm just sitting there for a second. I'm like, I better look at my phone. I better look at my phone. I better look at my phone, you know. And um, with the stress that we all have in our lives, uh, you mentioned your your daughter, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Um Let's just say people who are working a nine to five job, which most of us do, um, you, you you have that stress all day and it, it works both ways, right? You have the stress of the job and that's eating away at you, but it's also a distraction from the stress of everything else. Mm-hmm. So that when you get home, if you try to just be, it's very difficult because you're trying to let go of that stress so you could ease back into the stress of your life. Uh, which is always a fun, fun balancing act, and that's why they brought back Hawaii Five O. Because that that helps us all out. Um, So you said you have a toddler. Uh, How old is she? She'll be three at the end of this month, which means she was born right at the beginning of COVID. Well, so she is has impeccable timing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she really does. does. And, you know, at the time I would I would not have said that it was it was uh, there are a lot of words for what it was to give birth at the end of March 2020. But but then the world was shut down and we. I didn't feel like I was missing out on all these things going on because mm. nothing was going on. So in a way, in a way she did have impeccable timing, although, you know, the beginning was, um, I wouldn't have said so. Yeah. So I want to ask you something. Um, I do not have children because it wouldn't work out for Kevin. Um, but, uh, tell me about that. This is a very cliche question. So, but tell me about that moment when they, you've had the baby. Um, and you are, I, I can only imagine beyond exhausted and they put, uh, I think they put her on your chest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that moment. Well, first I'll tell you about the first moment they gave her to my husband. Okay. They gave her to him first because I was, uh, being operated on and Jeez. they, uh, <laughs> they handed her to him and he takes her and then the nurse says, no, no, you're doing it wrong. Whoa. <laughs> so my husband who's just like watched me be wheeled away to emergency surgery and now suddenly we have this baby and here it is and then the first time he holds his daughter he gets told that that he's doing it wrong so um I welcome to america exactly exactly <laughs> um 
It's funny, Kevin, and, and I, I wish this were different, but I don't remember. Mm. I have a picture of that moment. Um, and I actually had the picture. There's a woman who, who will edit photos for people. Um, especially during COVID, a lot of people's birth photos got highly medicalized and, you know, we're all masked in them. And, mm -hmm. um, but she edited it in such a way where, you know, she sort of blacks out the background and, and softens the tones and so makes it a little more uh, intimate. Um, and I have that photo and I look at it, but I, I don't really remember uh, that moment. I mean, uh, probably the thing we talk about the most on uh, this podcast besides, um, well, no, probably the most is trauma. And you want to talk about, obviously, it's a beautiful moment, et cetera, but a traumatic moment for the body. Yeah. Um, and what, yeah. what's uh, I, so I shook what I, what I remember from that time Um you know, they gave her to me, I had her for a while, and then I think she must have been sleeping, I don't know what she was doing, but I was shaking. And they tried to warm me and put blankets on me, and my body uh, just shook and jerked uh, mm. uncontrollably for probably an hour or so. Um, wow. And I had read before that, you know, in some cultures, they, they, they see that, and when that happens to a mother, that's like the child's soul is leaving the mother's body to because the child has left the mother's body, but that the soul didn't is catching up. <laughs> so that's like in, uh, an indigenous, indigenous, pardon me, way mm -hmm. of looking at that. And at some point in the last three years, then I was reading, I think it was Gabor Mate's book. Um, and he was talking about uh, the body writing itself after trauma. And I think it was his book. I might be misspeaking, but um having been in a car accident and um, I'm sorry, no, it was the body keeps the score. And so this was a trauma informed person, like a, a doctor who works with trauma and he himself was hit by a car. Mm. And over the course of his ambulance ride, he, he felt his arm start to shake or something and move. And he allowed it to do so because he knew this is what the body needed to do. And, and it was his body doing what it had wanted to do in that moment, which was reach out and stop the car. But instead the body didn't have time to do that. And so he sort of mm. let his body work out what needed to happen. And by the time he got to the hospital, he needed way less care than he would have um, because he let the body do what it needed to do only because he knew that it needed that. And when I read that, this was after having had an emergency cesarean. Um, it just, I don't know, my whole body just calmed. And I thought, oh, that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. You yeah. said the name of the book was The Body Keeps the Score? The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Um, and isn't that interesting, too? It's it's another instance where something starts happening, and our first instinct is either to stop it or to solve it. Yep. And exactly. often we're trying to solve things that... Um, cannot be solved like a Saturday New York times crossword puzzle <laughs> or that, yeah, that need to be worked out in us at a deeper level than our, than our brain can do our mind can do. Yeah. And you know, for, I, I, I do believe that man, there's just, we're pretty arrogant creatures. Uh, we walk around with our for, fully formed frontal lobes and we're like, we're better than all the animals and stuff, but we don't, we know very little, you know? So, um, but you, you recovered, um, uh, thankfully, 
uh, after after the birth of your daughter. And then, um, you know, people, they kind of talk about, okay, oh, it's wonderful to have a newborn. And then, oh, that's ter- that what they call the terrible twos. Um, and then, oh, they're toddler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I never hear much from people about kind of, there is a transition in there about, you know, very, the, the dog, the child is often, not always often breastfeeding from the mother. And then at some point that has to end. And, um, I, I know that I, I have to think I'll never understand or feel that type of connection with a human ever. Um, and I'm, I'd be curious to know about your experience with that and kind of how you dealt with it when, when she did move on to, you know, hot dogs and chicken wings and stuff, but in baby food form. Yeah. Yeah. Pureed hot dogs. That's one of her favorite things. Um, yeah. The, uh, God, there's just, there's so many micro phases that they go through from the beginning. It's like, I mean, right in the beginning, they're going through clothes. Like you wouldn't believe it's, you know, they get to wear something once and then they're too big for it. And, wow. um, it's truly amazing to watch them grow in the first, especially the first year, but the first two years. Um, and yeah, so we, my daughter and I were, we call it a breastfeeding pair, um, for more than two years of her life. It was, uh, I think two years and let's say three months. And, um, my husband and I decided, uh, to go on vacation, just the two of us. So that was our, our first time away from her for more than, you know, a, a couple hours. And this is, this is kind of around May, 2022 then. Yes. Right. So the world is somewhat opened back somewhat up. Somewhat reopened. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we're all vaccinated and all that. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we said, you know, it's been, it's been a hard enough time. I think we're going to go have some, some space, just the two of us. And when we got back, um, and we were, you know, we had already, we certainly weren't breastfeeding to the, to the extent that we were in the beginning. She already was eating solid food. It was just sort of this comfort thing that we would do mostly at night, um, and in the morning. And when we got back, she just, she like got on for one second and she took one look at me and she said, I don't like it. And she said she, you know, she was done. She just like drop of a hat. She was done cold turkey. And I, you know, I was kind of like, are you sure? <laughs> and she said, mama, make it cold. Cause she was already starting oh. to have cow milk from the fridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, sorry, sweetheart. I make, it make it cold. I'll go sit in the fridge for a while. <laughs> make your amazing body do other stuff too. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, it had been, for as much as it's everything, it's everything all at once. It's, it's incredible connection and joy and love. Like you can't imagine it's all those cliche things that people say that it's, you know, it happens to you and you go, Oh, I know I get it. Why they said it. Cause it's true. Um, and you meet yourself, you meet every ugly side of yourself. Every button gets pushed. Mm. And so I'd been through like, oh my God, please stop waking up. And, you know, the night weaning and saying, okay, we're not going to have it at this time. And, and I was already ambivalent about it. It had been more than two years of, of, of doing this, but also it was that sweet connection that you're like, it's, it can't ever be forever. Um, and I knew it wouldn't be. And in the end, I was really glad it was on her terms and that mm. didn't come from me drawing a boundary and trying to make it okay with her. And it, you know, that it came from her was wonderful. Um, and I grieved hard. What do you I mean by that? You hard. grieved hard. I mean, I know what that well, means, um, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Hormonal. <laughs> some of it's just pure, purely physical, mm-hmm. but just 
I mean, ugly, ugly crying for, for a few weeks. And, you know, it, it took months for my body to really, um, balance back out, I would say. But, uh, the first couple of weeks were, were really hard. And of course, I didn't want to show that to her. I wanted it to be that it was okay that that was her decision and I respected it. Um, and I said, you know, I'll be sad if that's your choice. Then, you know, I'll be sad. I'll miss, I'll miss this, but that's, it's up to you. And, it, um, and, you know, she never went back. Yeah. And, and so for me, for that to just go, I wasn't expecting it. I thought we would come home from this trip and we would be right back where we were. And instead it was like, wow, I, I decided I needed this for myself, which we did. And I don't regret it. And we came home and things were different. And that, um, was unexpected. And I, yeah, it was, I was really sad. How long were you guys gone on the trip? Like three days. It wasn't. Did you guys like go to Yonkers or? We went to the Dominican Republic. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. All right. You know, and it, again, so that's two weeks of, uh, I believe you called it ugly crime, but really profound grief because it's a loss of something. Mm -hmm. And, um, a mutual friend of ours actually uh, said to me not long ago that grief is a massacre. And I believe that's about right. Now she was speaking about grief uh, when it has to do with the death of a loved one, right? That's not what we're talking about here. But what I, you mean by that? can you say more about that? Uh, I think what she meant by that is that grief, the way I described it is this. Um, there's a uh, Emily Dickinson line that hope is the thing with feathers uh, and I, I say, well, if hope is the thing with feathers and grief is the thing with talons, because what it does is it reaches out and it doesn't care. It's indiscriminate. It doesn't care what it does. It just tears into things. And then it it's, it's almost as if those talons reproduce and get further and further away. And so you're like six, it, it, you're talking to somebody about something, that person's upset, you're feeling upset. And then you start to think and you go, this is about what they're grieving about. This isn't about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way she said grief is a massacre mm -hmm. is it just destroys everything in its path. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, I think the best, I don't uh, look, I'm no grief expert, but you know, it, I think you had said to me once that you, you need to feel grief so you can feel joy um, mm -hmm. at some point. So it's, it, I don't know if it, if you would feel this goes along the lines of what we were talking about earlier, like, you need to feel things in order to move past them. Would you say that for those two weeks when you were really grieving that, you know, the passage of, of this phase with your daughter, where do you feel that that is a good example of that? Absolutely. And in those moments, I would, I would go like, you know, if I felt it sort of welling up, it's like, Oh mama, you know, I have a big sad feeling and, and I have to go, I have to go be by myself for a minute so I can take care of it and let the sad out. You know, it's fascinating how, how I talk to her about feelings and I'm like half talking to myself. <laughs> yeah. Time. What did, how did she respond to that when you tell her you have a sad feeling? Oh, she gets, it. I mean, she, she is as deep as the ocean is wide as the sea. I mean, she, every single day she's her stuffy feels sad. She feels sad. Mama, I feel sad. I mean, she, she tells me I'm multiple times every day that she feels sad and she's also giggling and, and so joyful and jumping off the couch. And I mean, she's not like depressed, but every day she feels sad. And so if I say, wow, I have a really big sad feeling and I need to go let my, my tears out. And it's, you know, then I go and I cry and sometimes we cry in front of her. And sometimes, you know, if I know it's going to be big and ugly, then I'll go do it behind closed doors. And, um, because otherwise if I hadn't 
if I don't do that, then I can't be with her. Mm. I can't be present with her. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, if, if I've, if that's going on and like sitting there kind of like vibrating under the surface in me, she's sensitive enough to feel that. And she, I can look at her and be smiling and she knows if I, if that's what's really going on with me or not. Like she can smell that word integrity again. If I'm in integrity with myself or not, she knows. And so I can't, if I'm like annoyed or whatever, I can't hide it from her. So it's kind of amazing. Like she's, I mean, children are present 100% of the time. They don't know another way to be. Um, But she also kind of has forced that on me because I can't, I can't be dishonest with her. She knows. She knows if I'm regulated or not. Children are present. So my question for you, and this is, it's it's a question that you can't answer. These are the ones that I specialize in, but everybody is a child at one point, obviously. And it's going to be different for everyone, but the world just takes that pre- uh, it this is a very harsh way to say it, but it kind of beats that that presence out of people. Um and do you think that uh, I guess my question is ha- how do you think that occurs? I think it occurs over time. It occurs over uh, being vulnerable with people and then being hurt by being vulnerable. And so you close off just little bits of yourself, even when you don't know you're doing it. Whereas at three um, or almost three, uh, your daughter is, you know, jumping on the couch and um, all that good stuff. And, and maybe she's not even thinking of those things. So it's like, when do we even think of those things? Do we have to be told about those things? But we're probably told about them after we feel them. I don't know if any of that makes sense. It does. And I think there's I think there's multiple levels of it and layers of it. And some of it is just the brain developing. You know, I mean, her her brain, you know, there's a there's a time at which it's like she can't feel two feelings at the same time right now. She can't hold her brain that that doesn't help happen, I think, until, you know, between five and seven to be able to actually hold two feelings at the same time. So it's actually bravery. We talk like our culture is like so big on bravery now, especially with kids. But it's um, it's actually not possible to be brave until you can hold two things at the same time to say, I'm afraid and mm. I want to do this thing. And so I'm going to be brave and do it. But that's not possible for my daughter right now because she can only be afraid or want to do the thing like she can't she can't do both at once what what hold both what do you mean by the culture talks or uh, is focused on being brave or talks a lot about being brave what do you mean by that I, maybe it's like just in kid circles because i'm so in these mommy circles right now but it's there's so much about maybe and it's some of it's with girls too it's about teaching teaching bravery and teaching them to be confident and strong and um, just like uh, cultivating this sense of, of can do it. And, and in a, it's kind of this, like the culture of positivity in a way, but it, it's a, it's a slightly, slightly more well-adjusted side of the culture of positivity. Cause it's saying, you know, you can be afraid. It's okay to feel afraid. And I'm going to be brave and feel sad or, and I'm going to be brave and go up and do this thing that I'm, that I'm afraid to do. And I think it's great. I think it's, it's, it is great to cultivate bravery in children, but when not when they're three, cause it's not possible. Well, I mean, I think Disney, like everything took care of this for us uh, with the movie brave. So I, I assume you guys watch that every night. <laughs> uh, is that the one with the, I don't even know what, is that the Braveheart one? I don't even know. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't because that's in the window of of Disney that that I I didn't have young children and I wasn't. Ah, what? So, and another question I had for you, real fast, is how is she talking to you so much when she's at work every day? My daughter. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, it's it's pretty sick. I mean, she multitasks really well. Okay, good. Because, um, listen, I love you. I respect you. But I'm tired of, of paying for her to live. She needs to yeah. find her own way. I told her that two years ago, man. Yeah. And apparently nope. she's not listening. No. No, she doesn't listen very well. Ah, oh, damn it. Uh well, you know, in society and, and everything, and you were talking about walking in the city and, you know, when she was born, obviously babies, when they're born, don't necessarily get out much, but there was really no opportunity for that. And you said earlier about, you know, way, way the fuck back when, you know, the day ends, we're sad and we're present and we go and be with people. With COVID, we did not, I mean, that just wasn't something we could do, really. Uh, we, a lot of us, um, I, I, we had our essential workers and thank goodness for them, but a lot of people, we just stayed at home and, and, and we lost a lot of what makes us human, even introverts. I'm, I'm kind of an introvert, but man, there's, there's always too much something like you could drink too much water and flood your cells and die. Uh, that's even a lot for introverts, I think. So what do you think that? With especially that first year of COVID, right? Um, and I'm not talking about the horrible loss that we had with the deaths, uh, with the illness, with the immense horrifying stress that we put on our healthcare workers. Um, what do you think that we lost as a society there when we weren't able to be the social animals that we are? Oh, my God. Did you see that study? Some study came out last week that said... It's like, I'm going to laugh while I say it. It's so absurdly laughable. It said, um, the mental health effects of the pandemic were, uh, we studied them and we found that they were actually not that great. Yeah. Um, but, but we didn't study the, the, any of the populations that were most affected by the pandemic. Like they said that was. Somebody was told like, me about that like yesterday. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? So outside of the people who were affected, nobody was really affected. It's like, what? You, you, you was that Liberty University? Like, Be honest. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, I, you know, the difference between what we thought it would be like to have a newborn and what the things we thought we were going to do and being with our family and see, you know, the village, there is no village, but we, you know, we were going to pretend that there was a village. Mm -hmm. Um, it was so great. It, nobody held our baby until. Two months in, my mom finally just said, fuck it, I'm getting on a plane. Mm -hmm. I'm coming there. And she put on a mask and didn't take it off for 12 hours. And, you know, I made we made her shower when she got home. You mm -hmm. know, nobody knew what the hell was going on. Right. So she, you know, I picked her up at the airport. Wiped her down with Purell. Windows are down. Absolutely. She made <laughs> some Purell. And, then, and, uh, and, and she, because she just said, I can't, I can't stay away anymore. But that was two months into wow. having a newborn. Wow. That. Nobody, and we had some neighbors that would leave groceries outside our door. Oh, that's very nice. It was very, very kind. But uh, but nobody entered our home. And all those things, oh, someone comes over and they hold the baby and they, or they do the dishes for you. I mean, just just none of that. And that's just the, on the purely, you know, selfish side, honestly, of, of what it was like for us. Um, but I, I don't think it can be overstated, the mental health effects of the pandemic. I don't think it can be overstated. And we're, we're to the extent that we're dealing with it, we're just beginning to deal with it. Yeah, this, this I believe, uh, it's going to go on a long time. So I, I want to go back to this really spectacular study. And basically, I just want to make sure I understand. They're basically saying, 
oh yeah, the pandemic, it was hard for everybody, but there aren't going to be, they're not really mental health effects that we can see that are lasting. Is that kind of what they're saying? I think so. I mean, I didn't read the study. I, I, I don't really know much more than you do, okay. but it was, yeah, it was like, oh, we studied, you know, fairly affluent people who, you know, were just like, they were affected, but really not, not to the extent that, that everybody thinks is going to be terribly detrimental. But again, it's like none of the populations that that really were the most the most hit. Yeah, I, but they I don't have another home that to go to, or you know, whatever it is. I don't know. Right. Um, I I have a second home. It's in the north side of the Bronx. Um, I go up there a lot, just when I need to reflect and have some quiet. It's a great space for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I love uh, love is. I mean, I thought a positive thing. Okay. Uh, when COVID first hit and we were all terrified, right? Because again, we didn't know shit. We didn't know what the fuck was going on. Mm-hmm. Is that I, I noticed myself reaching out to people I hadn't talked to in years and people mm-hmm. were doing that to me as well. Um, and it was a really uh, wonderful reminder about connections with people and how they are stronger than you think they are even across time and space, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so even though we were all in our little homes and all this stuff and all that stuff we were able to i just found myself reaching out to people i i hadn't talked to in forever and it was just a really wonderful surprise that the isolation brought out some some long-held connections if that makes sense that absolutely does yeah and i think there's a there's a piece of some of that stuff that happened i mean i was connecting with people but um we were so caught up in it in this very specific phase that we were in. And so I always say to people like, I didn't get a pandemic hobby. I didn't get to bake bread. And you know, <laughs> yeah. like you had a child and, and my child, like my, my hobby was my child. Um, but everybody's story was different. And, and I, um, there are pieces of like, Oh, I got in a van and drove all over the country that I kind of think, well, if we had another pandemic, that's what I'll do. But <laughs> I saw something the other day where, where somebody during the first days, took like appliances around their house and put googly eyes on them and like made a picture where it looked like they were all on a zoom call together, (laughs) which I thought was pretty good. Um, Yeah. And even in, in those moments, in those moments um, uh, in another thing I hear from parents, again, not a parent myself is that you're like, man, the moments, they just go so fast. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's almost Similar to what you're saying about the clothes, right? Here's your new outfit. Oh, shit. One week later, that doesn't fit. Yep. It's like, ooh, one week later, oh, that that moment I had with my kid, ne- I might never have that again. That has to be – that's one of the reasons, God, honest truth, that I am afraid to have children is I don't know if I could deal with that continued loss of those moments and processing them while also being present with my child and being a responsible parent. I just don't think I have the full ability to do that. So how, if at all, how do you still stay in the moment with your kid while also maybe dealing with like, like you said, uh, mommy, mama's a little sad. She has to go in a room for a minute. Is it kind of that? You just need to take a moment for yourself, feel what you're feeling, and then you can come back and be present instead of trying to, as you said, hold two things in your mind at once. Yeah, I mean, you... You can't do it all at once and you can't be present in every moment. And in some ways it's like the, the gift, the gift of trauma is not remembering, you know, there's things that I, I'm probably glad I don't remember. Um, and there's like the, those, those early days kind of become a haze 
and a lot of that is probably good because they're crying and they're up at three o'clock in the morning. I mean, I remember the first, week, the first week we brought her home and my poor dog was just exhausted because she's up crying oh, and dog no. around in circles going, Oh my God, I got it. What's wrong? I got to protect her. And, you know, and then finally after like a week, he just collapsed and, you know, and slept and was like, all right, fine. They have to deal with it. Um, what kind of dog do you have? He's a little Corgi Chihuahua. Buddy. Is yeah. his name Brent? His, real, his name is Fen. Kind of sounds like Brent. Yeah. He's a real sweetheart. Um, but yeah, but it's like it, it in a certain extent, it's like, well, the way the way evolution happened, the way biology made us is is that you just get through. And so in a way you can't worry about all that stuff all the time because you're just surviving. But then space opens and you know, people say, Oh, you know, some old lady in the grocery store sees your little kid and is like, enjoy every moment. It's so precious. And it is precious. <laughs> I just want the cabbage, ma'am. You can't enjoy every moment because every moment is not enjoyable. And it is precious because it will never happen again. And it's like, it's just, it's like riding the river of life. I mean, so there's moments where I'm, I'm looking across the street right now at my window and I'm, there's the playground and I'll take her to the swings later and I'll be pushing her there and the light will hit me and, and I just take a deep breath and, and I stand there and I'm present and she's smiling and giggling and we're connecting and it's this, this beautiful, perfect moment, you know, and then I tell her it's time to go home and she has a tantrum and I'm like, all right, I'm, <laughs> and we just ride it. <laughs> yeah. It, my best friend and uh, his wife, uh, really his wife just had their first baby. Uh, in November, and I was with him last week in our hometown, and I saw his mom with the baby, and he is one of four, mm -hmm. and she, his daughter, is the fourth of their grandchildren. It's very interesting to watch. You know, you hear from, oh, I love grandkids and all this stuff, but she was doing all the things that she did as a mother uh, while watching her at this one point of the day. She changed the diaper, then she was like, like she was getting her ready to change diaper and she was counting each of the button, the one, two, like, and I was like, and it's like, wow, it's almost like she's getting, maybe that's what the wonderful thing about being a grandparent is. I don't know. It's like, you're getting to relive being a parent again. Hmm. I, yeah. I don't know. Then you get to give the kid back. And right. Then it's like, well, that's enough of that. I get a full night's sleep. <laughs> that's right. How long did it take uh, for your daughter to kind of sleep through the night? Oh my God. Everybody, people are so obsessed with sleeping through the night. I, <laughs> I still can't do it. Exactly. <laughs> really, none of us sleep through the night. Everybody has sleep cycles and everybody comes up into light sleep multiple times a night. And maybe you wake, you actually fully wake up because you got to go to the bathroom or whatever. And so kids, you know, it, it's still, it depends on what's going on with her. If she's sick, she wakes up. If she's, you know, now she's like, she's growing. And so she'll wake up at like four or five and she's often hungry. Mm -hmm. And that's a time where in the past she would have breastfed and, and it's like, well, she's hungry. She's growing. Like dinner was 12 hours ago, practically. Yeah. Um, and then there's nights she's just, she's been outside all day and she's totally zonked and she sleeps for 12 hours. And so it's like there, we, there's this thing of like, Oh, by this time they're supposed to be sleeping fully through the night. And, and it's like, they're not machines. They're little people. And just like us, like we sleep better, we sleep worse, we have different stuff going on. And and maybe she she wakes up and she's scared and they need more more soothing and more comfort to go back to sleep. And they're just little people. Man, that's so true. Especially what you said 
you didn't say this explicitly, but the way I've been thinking a lot lately about the way my brain works is I have these rules. And the reason I like rules is because they help me eliminate feelings. And we as society have laws, right? Because we have to have laws or there's chaos, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there are very few in this life definitive answers, such as a, a very anodyne example that would be like, well, my, like if, if your daughter's not sleeping through the night after two months, there's something wrong, which obviously you're right. They're not machines. But we as humans, at least I know that I do this. I need a – when I am anxious, I need a yes or a no. And the problem is there are very few answers like that. So I'd just like to take a moment and thank God for that. Thank you, God. Just kidding. Um, so, but I, I just wanted to point that out because that's a really good point. It, it is kind of a banal question, like when did she stop sleeping through the night? Because it's different for everybody. There is no set of rules for these things. And babies are babies, but they are people. And people, yeah. it's like we need, you know, we like rules because they give us control. Mm. And we want some control and like, dear God, I want to sleep through the night. Like, I don't want to wake up every day. Like, I get it. I get why people do it. And I also like, I don't have a nine to five job. So I didn't have to go back to work, especially. I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd and unethical the way our country uh, treats new new parents and children um, with the lack of paid family leave and and you know if if you have a job that's giving you that maybe it's what 12 weeks i mean it's it's not right um to and some some parents is like are back at work in two weeks and i i don't work, understand that i could barely walk like i mean it's it's just crazy um but people do what they have to do and so i get this like need for control and the need for your child to be a certain way but also there's this like you know, I sleep next to my husband every night and, you know, it's not 1950. We don't have our own, our own bedrooms. You don't we, push the beds together? As adults, like, we want the comfort of someone next to us at night, but then we think our, like, two-month-old baby is supposed to just sleep by themselves all night long in a in their own room. I mean, it's it's absurd, I think. Yeah, we're all, we're all just, um, we just continue to figure it out. Uh, and we're all, I think, we're all singular micro, microcosms of all of humanity and that I'll just speak for myself. My favorite thing in the world to do is this. I'll go through something and I'll be like, ah, got it, figured it out. All right. Everything's going to be fine from now on. And then life goes, hey, Kevin. And I'm like, hey, what's up, life? How are you? Fuck you. And then bam, right across the face, right? Because I don't really know. Um and it's about what you said, at least for me with my anxiety, it's about control yep. and and feeling like I have control of something when we have control of, of, of very little. Yep. Um, so do you think that we, wow, that's a good transition. I said so. And then do you think that we, thank you very much. Um, do you think we as a society, sous, wow, sous chef, I'll say sous chef. We as a society, thank you, Brent. Um, have PTSD collectively from the pandemic? Mm, yeah. I mean, I'm not a trauma expert. What? But, That's why I had you on. But I, <laughs> oh, I, I sent you those credentials. I'm yeah, you did. I, <laughs> uh, I do. I, I mean, I just like, I get on the highway and I look at the way people are driving, look the way I'm driving and it's, it's just there. It's still, it's under the surface. And I, I think I, you know, I feel a lot of my feelings. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about people who don't and it's got to go somewhere and it's all, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. Are the, are the subways and everything back to being full and everything in New York? No. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, they said their ridership is maybe at like 70% of pre pandemic levels. I could be wrong about that, but it's, it's not what it was, but people are also not in well, office. They're, yeah. They're working at home and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. I, uh, when I moved back to Chicago, um, like I was like, oh, we got to get to the train. And we got on there and there was like seven people on it. I was like, what the hell is going on? This isn't right. Um, you, you know, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Said you always get a seat. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Do you, do you ever, um, let's go back to what you said about family leave and having a daughter. Let's, you know, I'll say another cliche thing. The cliche thing is, because it's true is it seems to me the hardest job in the world is to be a parent. We live in a country uh, that seems to espouse family values above all else uh, espouse, but does not follow up on that. So it, being a mother in this country um, and you, again, you were in a fortunate position where um, you were able to stay with your daughter. You did not have to go back to work in two weeks or, or something absurd. Do you feel uh, What's it like? Is it different? Do you feel seen differently as a mother in uh, in the world than you did as just just a a woman? Do I feel seen differently? Like, Like, do you do you feel like mothers are? How do I say it? When you say things about the the paid family leave and everything, do you feel that mothers are getting the support from the society that you feel that they should have? No. 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 Okay. No, someone, I, I, I don't know who it is, but somebody went through and made like a spreadsheet or, or a, a form, something you could fill out where you could go in and say how, okay, this is how much time I spent this week wiping noses. This is how much time I spent this week, you know, doing diapers, um, you know, help picking up toys, uh, doing the dishes, all the thing, all the household work. Mm-hmm. And you could go in and quantify it and say, this is how many hours, how many minutes I spent this week doing all of these things. And then they calculated, they quantified it and they calculated and they said, okay, this is how much money you would make. And it's like, you know, women, we'd be making hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year if our work if work and it's not just mothers. I mean, it is it is more equal. My husband does so much, and he's a fabulous father. Um, but a lot of emotional work of the household tends to land on women, um, and still, even in in what people say, like more uh, egalitarian households, it's still parenting work tends to fall a little bit more to the mother, and it's um, it's just not valued like you said it's all it's lip service um and now watching the uh the abortion landscape now it's like we want you so much to have these children but then we are not going to support you at all once you have the children and how it's actually it's cruel and unethical and it's cruel not only to the child who will be born into a home maybe with no resources maybe to a parent that's not ready to be a parent and that like you were saying like how do you hold all it how do you keep them alive how do you you know and when you're not present the the child grows up traumatized Mm. and it's (laughs) 
there, I, there will be a generation of children born in this country due to these abortion laws that, um, will be traumatized, that will grow up traumatized, unable to care for themselves because they were unable to be cared for through perhaps no fault of the parent at all. And it's, um, honestly, I think it's really sick. And when I, I, I weep, I wept, I wept when, um, the Supreme Court decision was overturned, mm. thinking of the, the people that would be harmed by it. I, I, I remember I, I reached out to you that day and I just, uh, asked if you like cheeseburgers or something. It's not what I said. I reached out to you about that and I, I don't remember exactly what you texted back, but you're like, I don't have any words. I'm still trying to process all this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's just, I mean, that's a whole other show, a <laughs> lot to unpack. Uh, you, you know, it sounds like now I could be wrong here. It sounds like you're married. Did I tell you that I'm married? You just did now. And fuck you for not telling me before. I'm sorry, Kev. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So, um, I bring that up because now how long have you been married? Uh, eight and a half years. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, and you, uh, as a performer, you not only act, you sing. I do. Uh, and, um, how many years ago you did yourself, uh, you created a one woman show. Do you want to talk a little bit about that show? Sure. I, I, so I created it, um, like nine years ago. Um, right. It was actually during the time that I was engaged and I had a, a producer I knew called me and he said, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm putting together a, a series of one night, you know, concerts or something this summer. And do you have a show that you would like to come and do? And oh, wow. You know, somebody says that to you, you just say yes. So I said, yes, I have a show, you know, and we hung up the phone. I was like, I got to make a show. Yeah. And, uh, and I just thought, well, what, what will this be about? And, and what was happening for me at the time was, um, was one of the hardest times of my life. And that was, was being engaged. Um, I used to say that the moment my husband proposed to me was the worst moment of my life. And, uh, we're we're happily married now for eight and a half years. Um, but it was, it was truly harrowing. It was truly harrowing. And I say that it's like, I, I gave birth in March, 2020 and getting engaged was potentially more harrowing. Why? Uh, it, it's, it unlocked in me. I, I say, um, I think I say in the show now that that's when the portal opened it, it, it unlocked in me. It was like, Anything, any anxiety that I had been keeping at bay, any like mm-hmm. stuff or like, you know, transi- tra- transitions out of childhood, like stuff that I hadn't processed. It was like this Pandora's box opened of everything unprocessed within me, all in the, in the guise of like, can I, can I, can I do this? Can I marry this guy who I love? But it became for me all these questions about like real, true intimacy and, true commitment and and being seen and being known and am i worthy of being loved and um just these huge questions that then but you know it's it's anxiety so you know they don't show up like those questions they show up like oh i don't think he's very funny or like i don't think he's i don't you know it's all like i don't think he's good enough it's all these projections onto it wasn't that he was wasn't funny but like i don't know if he i'm supposed to be living some some big bright like better life and he's gonna hold me back from that and like just all this Mm. crap that's like you know anxiety just comes in all these 
uh, costumes. So the real stuff underneath was was unworthiness and was was grief and um you know the realization that okay if we we get married we'll probably one of us will watch the other one die and who wants to go through that and the the fear of jumping into what is you know truly the this the greatest adventure of my life but um but at the time just was terrifying yeah um i have a problem I have a lot of problems, but one of my problems is that I always want to get to the end of things. And so it's very interesting to me that you said, you know, one of us is going to watch the other one die. Um, because that is the culmination of something. But I always want to get to the end of things. It's just like, I know this is going to happen. And for me, at least, I think it's a control thing. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Like all this wonderful thing, you know, eight and a half years married. Um, it was obviously an over, as you're speaking, overwhelming experience. But one of the things you thought of is, well, in 50 years, you know, we're going to be dead. Uh, and it's just interesting that brains do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, also I wanted to point out on this with with um, with marriage. It, did you when you so when you were proposed to, did you feel any I, it sounds like it was a pretty difficult thing for you to just put all that together? Did you feel any sense of relief? No, not until it was over. Relief? No. Well, the reason I say relief is I, I tend to see, it seems to me that a lot of people when they get engaged, it's almost like they're like, all right, um, I did it. I did what society has asked of me. I've become engaged and now I will be married. And now here's 400 pictures of me with my hand on his chest showing a ring. You know what I mean? There is something about, about being engaged that um, I remember saying at the time that it kind of created a container. For our relationship that felt like, okay, now we've, we've really fully defined it. And so I can, I can, mm. I can let go into that. Like, so now we've created this like basin, that this is what we're saying. These are the walls of our relationship. We are engaged. It's, it's closed. There's no like door, door out. And so, you know, in the moments that I wasn't claustrophobic because there was no, no door out, it was like, oh, well, this is what it is. And so I can relax here now because we've, we created a container. So I think, I think, yeah, I guess I take it back that there, in moments, in the moments when I was feeling safe, um, yeah, it was like, oh, okay, great. Like I, and less of like, oh, society expects this of me and I'm, and I've checked the box, mm -hmm. but like I can, I'll be, I'm, I'll be safe here. I, I love that. I think that's a really wonderful say to say, uh, way to say that. What's the name of your show? It's called Marry Me a Little, a Cold Feet Cabaret. <laughs> um, and you're about to do it again, aren't you? I am. I'm, I'm bringing it back. I, you know, so I did it, it when I was engaged. I did it in the year sort of following us getting married. And, um, you know, I was I was in it. I was in it and it was, there were always things that just never quite worked. And, um, it's hard to have hard to look at something clearly when you're in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it never really left me and it's just been sort of stewing around in my brain for the last eight years. And, uh, and I decided to bring it back and I have a new team and, um, new stuff, new material. There's a lot that, that stayed, um, uh -huh. we have stuff and, and, uh, yeah, I'm really excited. I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's the story that I want to tell. 
That's wonderful. And uh, telling stories is the best thing. And you are doing that where and when? I'm doing it at uh, a venue in New York in Midtown on 42nd Street called The Green Room 42. Mm-hmm. And I will also be live streaming it. So it is available worldwide. And we'll have the link for that in the show notes, right? What are the dates? Uh, it's Wednesday, March 29th, mm-hmm. and Saturday, April 1st, and Saturday is the, the live stream day. And that link will be live uh, if you couldn't make it at 7 p.m. New York time. Uh, the link will be live for a couple days, so you could get a live stream ticket and watch it at your own time. Okay, and I, I do want to seriously commend you for taking what uh, a very complicated and anxious and vulnerable moment of your life uh, and making it into something where you can maybe laugh at it a little bit, but also share your story with other people so that they feel less alone. I, I, I cannot commend you enough for being brave enough and vulnerable enough to do that. So kudos to you and congratulations to you on, on bringing the show back um, in New York. And we will have a link to that in to buy tickets and to the live stream in the show notes for anybody who may be listening. Mom. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear that you've brought it back. And it, one of the most fun things is you've been able to, it sounds like, update it with things that you may have learned. And, you know, you're eight and a half years later now, all that good stuff, right? So congratulations to you. Um, I think it's wonderful. Uh, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to impart or share, uh, you know, before we wrap up today? Um, you know, anything at all? Mm, thanks, champ. I just, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for that, for your words. Um, I think it's, it is kind of a cliche, but something that people say after they, they've been through something is they say, well, I don't want, I don't want anyone else to go through it. Right. And I don't know if I'd say that, um, because I think it's a human experience and it's something that people go through. Um, uh, what I want to say is if you are going through it, it's okay. And it's normal. And it's, uh, I, that's why I want to tell my story and share it is uh, not, not to, you know, stave off anyone else's anxiety forever, which is impossible, but to, to, um, to make a little home for it. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I, I think now, now being with my daughter, it's like a whole new world has opened up to me. And I, I, it's like the stuff I tell her every day, like I was saying before about feelings is, you know, she'll say, mama, I feel sad. And, and I'll just say, oh, you know, that's okay. And I think for at first I used to ask her, like, oh, why do you feel sad? Or did something happen? And, you know, I usually still try to check, like, did something happen? But then I think, like, if someone asked me that, it's like, I don't know. I don't always know why I feel sad. And it's Wednesday. Like you said, like, we, exactly. Oh, we want to solve it. We want to fix it. And I can't fix right. it for her. And I want, I imagine, like, what if I had grown up knowing that I could just feel sad? And then you know, two minutes later, she's jumping on the couch and, and that it, it can come and go and that the waves of sadness or any feeling can can come and go. And so I'm watching her, I hope I'm imparting that to her and I, I see it in her that it's just whatever she brings and she says, this is what I'm feeling. And I say, okay, like I'll I'll be here with you through that. Um, I can't stop you from feeling it mm. and I don't need to. So that's wonderful. And I don't need to, that's, that's a really beautiful point. I think, um, well, champ, the champ, what a joy It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for being on and, um, obviously break a leg with your show. Um, and, um, 
you know, just for everybody out there, uh, Katie sends out uh, uh, an email somewhat regularly about kind of what she's working on, what art she's making, all that good stuff. And it always just puts such a smile on my face whenever I see that come through and uh, inspires me whenever I see that to see that she is is continuing to create something out of uh, maybe some pain, maybe what what have you, and, and, and be the person that you want to be. Um, and so I look up to you for that, Katie, and I really, really, really appreciate you coming on today um, and sharing some of your story. Uh, I, I think it was wonderful. So thank you for that. And for everybody else who's uh, listening, um, you know, something I try to remind myself of and forget every day. Uh, is there's always room for kindness and grace in any situation. And especially when it's a situation where you're evaluating yourself, I guess. Uh, I'm extremely, extremely hard on myself. And I try to remind myself to be a little kinder to myself each day. And I, and it's just a something I try to share with everybody at the end of the episode. So just a reminder that there's always room for kindness and grace. Um, so Katie, thank you very much. And we'll see everybody next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.